I need your help today with the beginning of the sermon because I need to, to tell you where to turn. So, my Bible is open in front of me. I'm going to read the first two words of this book of the Bible in the original language, and you need to help me figure out where I'm reading from so that I, then I can then say, everyone now turn to this book of the Bible. So I know it's early on Christmas morning, and you might not be ready for a quiz, um, but I think it's going to be pretty easy. First two words, original language, Biblos, Genesis. Biblos means book, Genesis means beginnings, genealogy. What book of the Bible do you think that is? Well, that's Greek, and it's the book of Genesis, but not the one you're thinking of. It's not the first book of the Bible that I would need you to turn to. I need you to turn to the second Genesis. And you might be thinking, where in the world is the second Genesis? Well, we had our scripture reading earlier in the second Genesis. And the second Genesis, according to the Bible, is the gospel according to St. Matthew. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to the book of Matthew or the gospel according to St. Matthew. First two words in the Greek New Testament, Biblos... Genesis, the book of Genesis, oh, the book of beginnings, the genealogy in other words, oh yeah, because really it's the book of new beginnings, it's the book of the second beginning because it has to do with Jesus, it's my favorite book of Genesis if I had to pick one, because I know how things go early on in the first book of Genesis, which I like too, don't get me wrong. But because of what happens there, because of the fall, we need a new Genesis. We need a new Adam, a better Adam. And that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. We're going to look at the genealogy of Jesus in the gospel according to Matthew, Biblos, Genesis. And let's go ahead and let's read that genealogy. It's verses 1 to 17. I think it'll be a great compliment for what we read earlier. We read 18 and following. But now let's learn about this new Genesis. Let's learn about that it's no coincidence that it sounds a lot like Genesis, but better. Matthew 1, verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Abinadab, and Abinadab the father of Nation. And Nation, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon." 
And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shiltiel, and Shiltiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Ebiad, and Ebiad the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliad, and Eliad the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and... Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Ten striking features regarding the genealogy of Jesus. That's what we're going to do this morning. We won't do a word study on each of those names. But what we will do is observe some striking features, some important facts about that genealogy that cause us as Christians to say, this is wonderful. This is good news that Christ the Savior is born and He's born according to a certain genealogy. He's born at a certain time and a certain line in order to be our great and certain, and I mean it in a different way, Savior. I hope you're encouraged today. I hope your heart is stirred to want to see the beauty and wonder and magnificence of Jesus and to be thankful for being able to have confidence in your life now and in the future because you're right with God through this great Savior, Biblios, Genesis, the new beginning, the ultimate one, Jesus himself. First striking feature is that Jesus is the key to the new creation. Jesus is the key to the new creation. It's not a coincidence that Matthew 1 sounds like the first book of the Bible when it's only the first book of the New Testament. The Genesis that we have is a new Genesis. We have a new beginning. We have new life in Christ, ultimate life in Christ. It brings something better. He brings something better. He doesn't give us, as Rick Warren wrongly said, the famous pastor, I have to say, that we, we get a mulligan when Jesus comes. What a Christmas sermon. Okay, everybody, you get a do-over. Well, how's that working out for you? In Christ, we don't get a mulligan, to use golfing terminology. We don't get a start over ourselves. We don't get a mulligan. In Christ, the true and better Adam, 1 Corinthians 15, the last Adam, and there are only two in the biblical chronology, ultimately, there's the first Adam that leads to death, and there's the last Adam, 1 Corinthians 15, that leads to life. You don't get a do-over, you get the guaranteed absolute certainty of eternal life if you're trusting in Christ. If you read Romans chapter 5, everyone is united to Adam, and it leads to condemnation. But everyone who will believe, everyone who will trust in Jesus, the last Adam, is guaranteed not a do-over, hope it works out for you. No, it doesn't speak in those terms at all. It speaks in the terms of you have been justified 
Judgment day for you, in effect, has already happened, and God has declared you perfect. He's declared you righteous, even though you're not, and I'm not, because you have a perfect representative. So he is the key to this whole great, grand, and reality for us. Theologians have spoken in terms of the first Adam had unconfirmed righteousness. He was made good, right? He, he was, he was law upholding from the beginning. It was, it was untested. It was unconfirmed. But then when we have Jesus, the last Adam, the true and better Adam, it's not unconfirmed. It is settled. It is done. It is irreversible. And this is why we say we trust in Jesus. We trust in Jesus because we have absolute certainty. This is why we love texts like Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There's no condemnation. Now there's no condemnation. How? If you're in Christ, there's no condemnation. The new and better confirmed righteousness, Genesis. That's why Christians are so excited about Jesus. It's like it's a religion or something. Passion, zeal, boldness, encouragement. It's wonderful. Let's move on to another striking feature about the genealogy. He's the, he, he, on purpose, he's the new Genesis, if you will, but the next striking feature is Jesus is the Christ. He is the Christ. Look there again with me, if you would, in verse 1 of chapter 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And that's super obvious to our ears, even as Americans. In America, sometimes we think, well, that's because it's his last name or something. But even as Christians, Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus, Jesus Christ, we speak in these terms frequently, and sometimes then we don't think about what it is. It's a huge, extraordinary deal for Jesus to be Christ, to be the Christ. Even Matthew himself, in Matthew's gospel account, if you were to go through the whole thing, most of the time, I think over a hundred times, it's Jesus, just using his personal name. And then very selectively, very particularly, far less times, I wrote it down somewhere, 150 times Jesus, 17 times uniquely, strategically, Christ. Christ means king. It means anointed one. All of the kings of Israel were Christ's, we would say, lowercase c. Okay, if you were anointed by formal ritual, you were designated and, and, and shown to be the king, the ruler. So God would anoint, but they would even have a ceremony of anointing to, to symbolize this for everyone. And, and through ceremony, this is our king. Well, Jesus is the ultimate Christ. He's the ultimate king. And think about with this with me, if you would. And we, I, I do this quite often because I want to have you be thinking in terms of it's, it's significant. It's extraordinary for him to be the Christ. What does a Christ do? Well, uh, a Christ provides. A king provides for his people. A Christ protects. He protects his people, right? Um, so providing, protecting, uh, delivering from enemies, saving in other words. And so, and if we have a perfect Christ, he's not in it for himself so he can have, you know, more fame or more fortune, if you will, in some sort of corrupt kind of way, like every king ever in all of human history. And, and here in America, we're not very fond of kings, if you know anything about our history. Well, here is the one who we can be fond of, the 
Christ. He will provide. He will deliver. He will protect from enemies and harm. Oh, Jesus Christ. He's the one we've been waiting for, even if we don't know we've been waiting for him to provide ultimate deliverance. This whole book of the gospel according to Matthew is about him being the Christ in verse 16 again and 17, the Christ. It's about him being the ultimate king, the one we can trust in, the one who will deliver his people from their sins, defeating all of their enemies, protecting them from harm. That is striking, even though it's not very striking to us. I hope that in your life, you'll get to the place where every time you see Christ, you'll think that's a big deal. That's a, that's a huge big deal. The deliverer, the king, the anointed one. Well, we'd better move on. We're going to do 10 of these. This relates to the others. It relates to three and following. He's the the Christ. Number three, next striking feature. Jesus is the son of David. In the genealogy, when he's designated the son of David, well, David was a Christ, lowercase c. He is the Christ, but he's, he's the son of David. Now, wait a second. Think with me. I thought Jesus' father's name was what? Joseph. Well, that, you're right. Good job. (laughs) You passed Sunday school today. (laughs) But he's the son of David because he comes in the lineage. He comes in the line of David. And, and he needs to come in the line of David to be the right ultimate Christ. And here in our text in Matthew 1, 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. He's the ultimate David. He comes in the genealogy, in the line of David. He's not the actual son of David, become, because, but he comes in his lineage, in his line, and that since he's a son. And let me ask you, why is that important? Well, it's really important because of the promise that was made to David a long time before this. Sometimes we call it the Davidic covenant. Uh, in 2 Samuel chapter 7. It's not called that there, but we call it the Davidic covenant because it looks like a covenant, walks like a covenant, sounds like a covenant. It's probably not a rhino. A rhino. Uh, okay. We have labels for things, and, and it's the Davidic covenant, the promise uh, to David that one would come in his line who would rule and reign how long? For eternity. So people could trust him. It says this in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, nice way of saying when you die, I will raise up your offspring, ah, there you go, after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom and he shall build a house, a dynasty, a kingdom, if you will, for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So we have to have someone who can rule and reign forever and has to be someone who's not Solomon because Solomon's going to have a funeral too. And Solomon is actually, he did a lot of great things and he did a lot of horrific things. He's not fit to rule and reign forever. No way. But the one who is the son of David, oh, The genealogy is important because he's the one who can do it. He's the one who can fulfill this. He's the resurrected one. He can rule and reign forever. He's the one. He's the one. 
This label, son of David, is used strategically in Matthew's gospel account. We won't take the time to look, but it's most often used. Interestingly enough, it's used in the triumphal entry because it is triumphant, even though it doesn't look like it because he will conquer the grave. But it's also used strategically in Matthew's gospel account. Son of David, son of David, son of David, son of David. When people need help, when people are desperate, they call out to Jesus as the one who is the son of David. The king who's not in it for himself in any way, shape, or form. The king who can help us. The king who is fit. The king who is able. Who is the Christ. And the Christ is the son of David. In your moments of despair, when you need help, if you're thinking like biblically literate people in Matthew's gospel account, and maybe they're not even that biblically literate, maybe they don't even realize what they're saying, but they know enough to know the one they need to call out to when they need help, son of David, the fulfillment, the one. One big problem we have is we're bitter people sometimes because everybody lets us down. Right? We could all have a little pity party and say, I've about had it up to here with people letting me down. Christians, church members, pastors, why aren't you meeting all of my needs? Because I'm not the son of David, right? And no one in your family is the son of David and none of your friends are the son of David. And so we all make bad functional saviors. Remember, this great one that we're celebrating, we're celebrating his birth today comes in this lineage and it's striking to say, oh, finally, the son of David, the one I can put all of my confidence in. There's only one who is the son of David, dear Christian. Trust in him even as a Christian and dear non-Christian. That sounds strange. But regardless of who you are in earnest, you should trust in him. The son of David. He's the one. Let's move on to the next striking feature. And that would be that Jesus is, you could probably guess where I'm going next if you have a Bible in front of you. <laughs> He's the son of David. I probably, I promise we won't do all of the names, but some of these things are more important than the other of the things. The son of David, the son of Abraham. And what's so special about Abraham? Well, if you've been a Christian for very long, you know Abraham is special because of the song, right? Father Abraham had many sons, right? There's your Christmas gift the pastor sang to you. Wasn't it wonderful? Um, <laughs> had many sons, right? It's Father Abraham. They're, they're, oh, the Abrahamic covenant. The, the great promise, the great oath, the great promise that God made to Abraham that he, that he would make him great and the father of many, what? Many nations, right? That was the, that was the great promise in the first Genesis to Abraham, and it's repeated so many times in the New Testament because it matters for all time. Well, Jesus is the son of Abraham. What's the key ultimately to having people blessed? All different kinds of sinners? Abraham, but not really. The promise was made to Abraham, but Abraham actually couldn't be the one to make good on it, if you will. So it's important, Genesis 12, verse 3, I will bless 
those who bless you and in him who dishonors you, I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. All the families of the earth shall be blessed. And we know if we keep reading and if we keep reading long enough to get to the New Testament, the ultimate blessing is going to be salvation. The ultimate blessing is going to be deliverance, spiritual deliverance. The Bible speaks of it in Romans 1, 2, 3, 4, and so on. Galatians over and over again as that we can be made right with God, right? We can be justified. And it's the great blessing of redemption and salvation and all that, that it entails. Well, the, the key to that is Jesus being the son of Abraham. He has to be the one. Listen to this. How, how awesome is this? Galatians 3.16 says, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring... It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ, Messiah. He's the one that you want to attach yourself to by faith, because it's to Him that the promise is made. Galatians 3, 8 says, And the Scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles, the non-Jews, so it's all the nations, or the nations, Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed, blessed with salvation. All these different kinds of people. It's striking to see that Jesus is the son of Abraham. That means he's the one who's going to bring fulfillment. Salvation is going to come through him. It's going to come through Jesus. Rather fascinating if we do bookends in the gospel according to Matthew as well, because here we have the son of Abraham, and there's a whole lot there. And then we have the Great Commission in chapter 28, go and make disciples of all the Jews. It doesn't say that. Of all nations, all ethnos, because Abrahamic covenant, it's built in. It's built in. Jesus is the Savior of the world, all different kinds of people. Well, we have 10 of these, so we better do number five now. Number five, Jesus is the ultimate deliverer. He's the ultimate deliverer. Uh, Another word for deliverer is redeemer. He's the ultimate redeemer. And in the genealogy, we have some really strong statements in there that should stand out to us. Oh, that makes me think about oppression. That makes me think about enslavement. That makes me think about bad things happening to the people of God. And then the, that's the negative side. The positive side is that makes me think of what's the opposite of enslavement and oppression. It is deliverance. It is redemption. And we see it numerous times in that genealogy. So... Notice the word. It starts with a B, and it's Babylon, verse 11. If we drop down there, at the time of the deportation to Babylon, when I read that as an Old Testament semi-literate person, I'm not going to claim too much, I think, bad time in history. Enslavement, captivity, bad. And after the deportation to Babylon, I think it again, We drop down to verse 17 again, deportation uh, from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations, Babylon, Babylon, Babylon. Used historically, primarily from what I can recall in the Old Testament, but it's also used in the New Testament, like in 1 Peter, more uh, symbolically. Oppression. Bad. 
enslavement, enslavement to sin, enslavement to this world system, all the bad things associated with Babylon. Sometimes we say, you know what, we're living in our Babylon. It's Omaha, Nebraska, and especially Council Bluffs. <laughs> Not really. <laughs> but in light of First Peter, we borrow that Old Testament historic kind of verbiage, and we talk about oppression. And so what are we longing for? We want to be redeemed. Just like the Israelites wanted to be set free from bondage. They wanted to be set free from Babylonian, Babylonian oppression. We do too, right? Even though we're not in actual Babylon, all kidding aside. But we are experiencing difficulty and suffering and enslavement to sin and all of those kinds of things. And here, Jesus, who will save his people from their sins... He will deliver them from oppression. He will deliver them from, if you will, Babylon, if we're thinking about the way that is used in the Bible. That's significant. He's the one that can provide ultimate deliverance. He's the one we need to be looking to. And those historical markers are of theological significance. He's the deliverer. He's the savior from Babylonian-like oppression. Let's do another one. Sixth striking feature of the genealogy, Jesus is related to the right sinners. Jesus is related to the right sinners. And I hope that makes you think, that, does, that sounds weird. That doesn't sound right. Well, that's why I said it that way. But when you read the genealogy, there's some things in there that cause your brow to furl. <laughs> you go... Well, that, that doesn't seem right. Why did they put those people in there? This seems strange. It's kind of surprising. Sounds odd to have a genealogy like this. This is one of the reasons why I didn't really want to get online and do the swab in my mouth and, and, and submit my ancestry DNA. A number of years ago, my kids pitched in and that's what they bought for dad. And it sat there for a long time. I thought, for different reasons, I thought, I don't know if I want to send this in. In part because I didn't know if I wanted to know who I was related to, right? Heaven forbid I would be like my wife of Scottish descent, of the horse-thieving type. (laughs) I don't want to find that out. That's what your dad told me, so on good authority. Do I really want to find out who I'm related to? Because there might be some bad actors in my history. Well, Jesus knew full well there were bad actors in his his history. And get this, remember, it's on purpose. Right? We need to have the Davids on there. And we need to have the Abrahams on there. Oh, by the way, they're sinners also. Read Romans 4. But they're the best kind, right? (laughs) You want to be a Davidson. (laughs) You want that as your last name. You want to have, you want to have your last name be Abrahamson, though it's a little bit clumsy. But what you don't want is to be a Rahabson. Okay. What you don't want are some of these people in your lineage, at least if you're named Pat Abendroth. Tamar, verse 3. Rahab, verse 5. Ruth, verse 5. Uh, verse 6. Uh, Bathsheba, wife of Uriah, in other words. Those are probably, scholars tell us, they're they're probably all Gentiles. And if you want a prim and proper and pristine lineage as a Jew, ask anyone other than Jesus, don't include them. 
But Jesus, on purpose, has just such a lineage because Jesus is the Savior of those who are Jewish, who believe, and the Savior of Gentiles who believe. And we can all be encouraged by that and say, that's strategic. If you were making up the Bible, you probably wouldn't put this stuff in there. It's in there, though, on purpose. He's the Savior of the world, of Jews and Gentiles, in other words. And this is good news for you. It's good news for me. Quite honestly, this is good news for everybody, unless you are self-righteous. But to say, you know, I, I am a sinner. I'm so glad that Jesus identified with sinners. Even though he himself never sinned, he himself only ever did what was right. But he was treated as a sinner on purpose because he gave himself up for us, Jews and Gentiles alike, so that we could have salvation. Let's move on to number seven. Another another striking feature to this genealogy is this. Jesus is human and divine. He is human and divine. We read of it earlier. Maybe we have to venture outside of the genealogy just a little bit. But at least in Matthew chapter 1, related to the genealogy. If we drop down to verse 23, we read it earlier. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. So we do have a woman. We do have Mary. But yet she is a virgin and she shall bear a son. That, how, how in the world does that happen? And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So it is a mysterious reality for us to read of this Jesus. No earthly father. He would have a stepdad, Joseph, but no earthly father. Unique. He, he, he's the divine one, the eternal son. But he becomes a real human being. Because he really has a mother. He is genuinely human. So he, that's why we say he is the God man. Well, striking to the genealogy or at least the chapter as it flows because he is in the line of all of these humans and then he's born of a woman who is a human. Jesus is human and divine. We could talk a lot about this, but I at least want to highlight the significance of Jesus' humanity this morning. On a different Christmas, we'll focus on the God with us, divinity side of things. It's critical, it's important, it's vital. Both are vital. But for now, just for the sake of this morning, the humanity of Jesus is something that we don't think about very often. It needs to be recovered in biblical Christianity because there's no question he's born of a virgin. And her name is Mary. Why did Jesus need to be human? Why should that be important to you and important to me? Oh, we could look at Hebrews chapter chapter 2. We won't do so this morning. But it's really simple. Notice and be encouraged that Jesus is a human being because we're human beings. And if we're going to be saved, if we're going to be delivered, if we're going to be redeemed, we need one who's one of us. We need a true and better Adam. And a lot of times Christians have forgotten about this. F.F. Bruce, the New Testament scholar, wrote some very helpful commentaries a generation or so ago, lived from 1910 to 1990. He said this. He said, failure to recognize the humanity of Jesus is the besetting heresy of evangelical Christians. If we don't have a category for the humanity of Christ... He would say it's heretical, and he said it's 
of huge proportions of wrong in evangelicalism, to use bad English, but you know what I'm saying. Because he has to be in our place. As Adam was a human being, he as the last Adam is a human being. He has to fulfill all righteousness as a human being, doing all of the right things, tempted and tried and all the things you see in Matthew's gospel account, but successful on our behalf. So both are critical and important, and let's make sure we see that here in our text. Okay, number eight, nine, and ten. Quickly, number eight, Jesus is not an afterthought. We see according to this genealogy, it's on purpose, it's strategic, everything is happening according to a certain uh, specified timing and unfolding, and this happens, and this happens, and this happens. Now we understand Babylonian captivities, and now we understand Abraham, and we understand David, we understand harlots, and we understand all of these different kinds of people, and not as an afterthought, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, here comes Jesus. No, if I can borrow the verbiage and, 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 and add the commentary to the, to the genealogy of Galatians 4, when the fullness of time had come. I just can't get that out of my mind when I read the genealogy. This happens, and then this happens, and then this happens, and then this happens. And when the fullness of time had come, As in on purpose. As in not only is Mary going to be pregnant, but redemptive history is pregnant. This is the right time for this to happen. Not as some sort of afterthought. It was strategic that this was going to happen exactly when it was going to happen. All of human history had been waiting for it to happen. Since Genesis chapter 3, human history had been waiting for this to happen. Fascinatingly enough, and I don't want to read too much into this, but the promise of redemption and deliverance back in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15, a lot of Bible scholars, Bible-believing Bible scholars, dare I have to say, would say, and then when you have Adam and Eve having a child, it may very well be that Eve is thinking, is this going to be the one? When we get to chapter 4, is this the Messiah? Is he the one who's going to, I've been, I've been, I've had a baby with the help of the Lord. I'm paraphrasing. Is he the one who's going to fulfill Genesis 3.15? Waiting, waiting, waiting throughout the ages and the epics. And then history is pregnant. The fullness of time comes. Not an afterthought, but certainly one they were looking forward to. Okay, number nine. Next striking feature. And I have to say this takes us beyond the genealogy because now I'm thinking of the whole book of Matthew that goes beyond the genealogy. It starts a certain way. He needs to be a certain person. And then we start seeing Jesus. Next striking feature, Jesus is the ultimate example. He's the ultimate example. And what I mean by that is he always tells the truth. He, he always does the right thing. And we might say in thought, word, and deed. He's tempted. He's tried. He's betrayed. I mean, always and forever, Jesus is doing the right thing in the gospel account. So in the right genealogy at the right time, and then you read the gospel account, and he just always, unflinchingly, devotedly, always does the right things. And that's good. Can you imagine though what it would be like to be one of his siblings? 
Jesus, Jesus had siblings, right? He, he had half siblings, if you will. Can you imagine hearing your mother Mary? Mother Mary, oh, if you could just be more like Jesus, right? If it was in the 1980s, the, the, the Mary would fill the stock, the stocking stuffers would all have, you know, WWJD bracelets. <laughs> because <laughs> if you don't know what those were, I qualified, said in the 1980s, maybe the 1990s, I don't know. If you could just be more like your older brother, always and forever doing what's right. I point it out to you because it is impressive to see that he does fulfill all righteousness. Think Matthew chapter 5. The one who comes in that line does all the right things, and it's good that he does. But I did also want to lead you into number 10 and say, but it's not good news to you as a sinner. It's not good news to you if you're, if you're his half-brother James, because his perfect example doesn't save you. It's impressive. It's important, especially when we were talking about his humanity. It's very important, but it doesn't save you. It just shows you your sin. But it also might show you your need to trust in him as the one who is perfect, who fulfills all righteousness. And that does bring us to number 10, and then we'll be done for the morning. Number 10, Jesus is the Savior. He is the Savior, the perfect one doing all of the right things unflinchingly, unhesitatingly, loving God with heart, soul, mind, and strength, loving neighbor as himself. And then after the genealogy, but still in chapter one, we saw those awesome and unmatched words where we read in verse 21, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he will deliver, right? He will rescue. He will save his people from their sins. He's the savior. He couldn't be the savior who you need to trust in if it weren't for all of the other things. But in that great line, that new Genesis line, and then that high point, that climactic point, that exclamation point to save his people from their sins. Oh, yes. Yes. Born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth, the new Genesis, Trust in Jesus. And if you're trusting in Jesus, let me tell you this. Keep trusting in Jesus. Because he will save you from your sins. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for opportunities like this to consider something that we wouldn't otherwise consider. Thank you for your wisdom and calling us to meet like this, to gather like this. By the power of the Holy Spirit, you've been so kind and gracious to us. Thank you for Jesus who loved us and gave himself up for us. Thank you that he's trustworthy. Help us to not put our trust, our ultimate trust in anyone or anything else. But to, in fact, trust in him. The one who was raised from the dead, proving that everything he said was true. And that indeed he's trustworthy who is Christ the Lord, in whose name we pray, amen. May the Lord bless you as you go. Have a very Merry Christmas.